1: Overcast day. Uh, I must say the rain yesterday was lovely. It was quite extraordinary. It just sort of sort of plummeted down um, without I hope doing much in the way of damage. Um, but overcast probably sets the tone for the week because we have tomorrow the budget speech. And it's uh it's going to be interesting more for what it can't do than for what it can do because there is so much to do and so much so little money to do with it to do to sorry to do it with. Not to mention that um, the ANC government's priorities are all about face and what needs to be done and the the cost savings that need to be made and the SOEs that should not be supported. Uh, we are in, we are in a lot, a lot of trouble and, and nothing is in more trouble than ESCOM, which keeps trying to present itself as, as having a plan and getting somewhere. But my feeling generally is if we as ordinary people on the ground don't get a sense that something really is happening, it's not happening. Um, the, uh, the CEO of ESCOM, Andre DeReiter, has said that Two thousand staff have been retrenched. Now, if one remembers some time ago, there was a lot of discussion about the fact that about 20, at least 20,000 people need to go from ESCOM. And of course, what's happened to ESCOM is what happened to companies years ago when they first started to really understand, get to understand retrenchment. And that was, is that if you offer open, unalloyed retrenchment, you will get requests from people who you don't want to go because they are the most skilled and the most experienced and can transfer their skills the best. The people that you need to go, um, let me refer them to the la as the lame and lazy, don't go. They will they will hang on until they unless and until they are forced out. So that was a bit of a meander. We'll watch the budget with interest, but uh I I just don't see what uh Minister Mbaweni is going to do to, to make any real difference. And I think, I suspect much that is touted as positive will in fact just be wishful thinking. Um, wishful thinking, however, seems to have been the uh, order of the day in the rollout of the Johnson and Johnson vaccines to health, the the frontline workers in the health sector. Um, I did read, and I I can't remember where it was, uh, a, an article by Professor Glenda Gray, who described the mammoth and he, very, very quick task of getting those, um, those, those vaccines and getting them out for vaccination where they need, you know, getting them available to be sent out literally within a week of the AstraZeneca vaccine being pulled for not being effective enough. It's, it's quite an extraordinary story and it's, it's a real example of how it, when people are prepared to really go the extra mile, work unreasonable hours to get something done for for the good of society, it can be done. And then it has been undone. Uh, Surprise, surprise. And how has it been undone? It has been undone because what the government has done is required uh, health professionals to make appointments to be vaccinated at either one of two sites in the entire province – that will provide vaccinations. That's the Steve Biko Hospital in Pretoria, and the Chris Hani Baragwanath Hospital um, in Soweto. Now, you don't have to be very um, knowledgeable about the vaccinations and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera, to learn that there was confusion, confusion, and unsafe crowding at Steve Biko because more than a thousand nurses and doctors queued there on, I think it was Saturday, um, after getting messages that they had been registered to receive the vaccine. On Sunday, um, Chris Baragwanath uh, Hospital, despite him promising to be open, did not open. And uh, I know personally of doctors who stood in queues, had appointments, watched other people be taken and dealt with, Despite having no appointments and eventually walking away. Now, that probably doesn't come as a surprise because it's like, it's, it's really the sort of thing that the, that the government, particularly at central level, uh, would not uh, know how to handle properly. The rollout in England was so quick and so successful because they had made a, a substantial plan of getting the vaccines out as thoroughly and as quickly as they could to as many centres as possible. And I struggle to see, but although it would require really the private sector to be involved in the process, why the vaccines which are held centrally cannot be distributed to hospitals who can put in orders for the number of people that they need to, who are frontline medical workers, Get the, the 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 can even use virtually use Uber to get uh, the vaccinations to the hospitals to the clinics etc etc, and roll out the, the 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 required vaccination. Now apparently there are just under or just over a million um, frontline healthcare workers that NFD to be dealt with. And Gaut- countrywide Gauteng-, Gauteng has received 16,800 so let's put it this way at the, at the rate this is going and in the way it's being done um, the, the virus is likely to have mutated a few times since and the vaccines will probably be redundant um, I may be being a bit harsh but I gather things are going much more smoothly in the Western Cape surprise surprise so uh yes uh, uh don't hold your breath um we'll just have to learn to become good at what we at at, at uh at at handling the crisis without uh, fast vaccines because you need the vaccines to act quickly in order to prevent the or to to head off uh, mutation of the vaccines. So talking of uh, um Mutations, um, perhaps I'd like to just talk briefly about uh, Jacob Zuma um, on, on two levels. The one is that the Zondo Commission we know has applied for him to be held in contempt of court. But what is really uh, fun to look at in the notice of motion is they have requested that he be sentenced to imprisonment for a term of two years. Now, while we may all think that's wonderful and appropriate, I suspect that's not what the court will do, um, certainly not two years. But it's nice to see that it's being asked for, at least. It, it shows, shall we say, at least a robustness. On the other hand, um, Zuma gave a talk at an internal ANC conference over the weekend, uh, the, clearly it being that if you're in any form of disgrace, that is absolutely no bar to stand in, standing up and giving gratuitous advice. Um, and he basically said, and, and you've got to admire the chutzpah, that the law is soft on criminals. Zuma says that the country's laws went from extremely oppressive to apartheid to being extremely cautious to protect the rights of the accused, and this is why he says social cohesion is not possible in South Africa. Now, on the, it's, it's a wonderful. I mean, on the one hand, he says we're. Extremely cautious in protecting the rights of the accused, and he has benefited by being able to use the system over years to delay the inevitable criminal conviction um, the, it, I, I think the problem is not the cautiousness of the of the rights provided to the accused but the terrible state that the uh, The the criminal authorities, the police, and the and the the national prosecuting authority are in, and and the hole that they have to get out of to really provide a proper service to deal with crime in this country. So you know, being the hypocrite that he is, he said thus, and he then went on saying he then went on to say as I said that social cohesion is not possible in South Africa. Now, what I love about that term is that it means nothing. Why should there be social cohesion? And what is social cohesion anyway? It's one of those terms that that the ANC leadership likes to use to sound like they're talking about something, and they really are not. And I honestly think that uh, that uh, you, 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 we can trust the government when they use words and terms that we actually understand. Words of one syllable that we actually understand, or two syllables like free market. Understood. So, um, Zuma continues to uh, entertain, and with that we will go to our first ad break before we introduce our guest.
0: Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.
1: And welcome back to the IRR show. Um, I would like to introduce my guest for today who is my esteemed colleague, Michael Morris. He's the head of media at the... Institute of Industrial Relations, and the editor of The Daily Friend. And I've invited Michael on, as a very, very experienced journalist of many years, uh, to talk about the saga that accompanied Jacques Poe's article in The Daily Maverick, claiming that, amongst other things, that he'd been appallingly treated by the police, and he'd been arrested for all sorts of wrong reasons, etc., which we will go into. And what are the real consequences of someone as big a personality as Jacques Poe being enmeshed in something like this? Michael, welcome. Good morning. Uh, thank you morning. very much, Sarah. Uh, Michael, can you just before we get onto Jacques Poe, um, give us a little bit of background as to your, your media background and some of the issues, that, some of the ethical issues that journalists have to keep uh, at the forefront when they are going about journalistic business?
2: Indeed, indeed. Um, it makes me feel terribly old, actually, to recall that I, <laughs> I began as a, I began as a cub reporter um, at the Diamond Fields Advertiser in Kimberley, which is my hometown, uh, all the way back in September 1979, which is uh, it seems an awfully long time ago. Um, I, you know, astonishingly, in those days, we, we, we still used typewriters and copy paper, um, and my, my, in fact, my 21st birthday present was a portable typewriter. Um, oh. But this of course came really just on the cusp of the obsolescence of all of that the hot, yeah. hot metal printing and typewriters and, well,
1: um, and so
2: on can, can I admit sorry. something
1: along those lines mm, um, mm. when I started my legal career um, which was not all that long after, after, after you started being a cub reporter uh, we were still using telex machines and trying to get to grips with fax machines which were the, the new innovation on the block, so right. I yes. fully understand It's
2: astonishing actually how uh, I mean, to, to me it's, it's, it's a relatively short period, it's 40 years or so um, <clears throat> but how things have changed so so dramatically in, in the media mm. environment, but uh, yeah but one thing, I, which you know I then went on to the Cape Argus Cape Town, I served in London with the, the old Argus Group London office for four years um, and then covered Parliament for period of from P.W. Boeta to Mandela and then carried on in, in newspapers until I joined the Institute in, uh, in 2017. Um, but one thing that has remained constant, despite all these uh, really quite dramatic and, and revolutionizing changes in the technology, is the, the fundamentals of, of, of journalism. And um, I think that the, the one thing that you could say, is an article of faith that says the sacred foundation of it is, is facts. And and the in a a sense the suppression of self the fact must always override what it is you either hope to find or think you've seen want to believe you you've just got to be able to verify what has happened that's really the kind of foundation and I think all the ethics then flow flow from that Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah so I think that's probably a good a good way to to frame this this conversation
1: okay um. I'd like to just get a summary from you about the, the, what the Poe saga was about, but just to sort of set the, the idea that Jacques Poe is, I suppose, almost a celebrity uh, journalist. He he does um, a, a lot of in-depth research. He's written a number of books. Probably the best known at the moment is President's Keepers, which is quite a gripping um, Lift of the lid on all the, the, the no, the no goodness that was perpetrated by Zondo under the, Gupta, under the Gupta era and, and related things. So it's, it's really, um, it's, it's a gripping read and one assumes that he has done what, what one assumed he was best known for doing. And that was really drilling down and getting to the facts so that the, the book could not be challenged. Right. So right. this, this event with him has, has come, um, I, I don't know, certainly from a sort of, a, just a reader point of view, really out of the blue and is quite extraordinary. Would you give us a little bit of background into what, what actually happened?
2: Yes, yes. It, it seems, you know, the, I think the impulse to write what he wrote, you know, one can understand, it's a very human impulse. He, he he'd had a, a, what appears to be a fairly liquid lunch, which, uh, or, or dinner, it's quite, I can't quite remember what time of the day it was, but anyway, it was several hours in a restaurant at the waterfront, ran up a very big bill, um he was by his own uh account he was he had too much to drink he was a bit uncertain about the details of what was happening around him um there was a dispute about or difficulty with paying the bill of a thousand six hundred rand credit card bounced several times um and there was then confusion about how he was going to settle the bill um and in this process he left the restaurant the cops became involved he was then duly arrested um and accused of various things, um, spent the night in jail, uh, and then three days later he sat down to see what had happened and sent this off to the, the Daily Maverick. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's, you know, it's a, in, in indicative of the, the, the evident problems in he would written is the fact that Daily Maverick immediately began to pepper him with questions to ask the waterfront people and the restaurant and the cops for more detail. They were clearly Kind of uncertain, um, and this I think brings us to the point, and you And you mentioned it. Here's a man who's got a, a rock solid reputation uh, as a journalist and investigator of truth and facts. Um, and you know, here he's written something. And what do you do as an editor? Um, and uh, you know, as, as, as a journalist, and, and, and you, sorry, you're also involved in the Daily in the Daily Friend. You know, you get something like this, it's, it looks like a really great story, it's important, it's about, you know, potential abuse of state power, uh, and so on. You know, do you run with it? You, know, you, you kind of check the facts as far as you can and then you make a decision. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's essentially where, where, where uh, the Daily Maverick stood. And I think we would probably be in this, have been in a similar position if it had been offered to us. Great story, we didn't want, wouldn't want anyone else to have it. Um, Try and verify things, and then you know. Ultimately, it comes down to trusting the guy Mm. because of his reputation. Um, And I think three three things. um, uh, Although there are three key things for me, Um, the one which we haven't spoken about yet that now is is this question of race, and it's it's absolutely incomprehensible to me that um, that umteen media commentators have suggested that. Poe's authority at the moment his piece was assessed and published derived not a, you know derived not at all from his authority as a journalist, but from his maleness and his race, mm-hmm. which really is just quite extraordinary. And if you think that, you know, had the piece been written by uh, Justice Bellalo or Mondale McConaughey, I feel certain the dynamics of the reaction would have been the same and for exactly the same reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so race really is not a rational part. Of, mm. of, of, of this debate. But the key thing, <clears throat> well, the second point, I think is also quite is I'm not entirely convinced that the saga, uh, necessarily damages the media as a whole. I think the test for the media is really whether or not it publishes material that turns out to be questionable, but how it then addresses the error. <clears throat> mm. Conversely, you know, instances such as this, such as this can actually be, can be good for the media in the sense that it gives them the media an opportunity to demonstrate how it how it responds? How, how firmly it, it, it chooses fact over, over fabrication? You know, he, he's, he's been he's been deep deep platformed or whatever it is. Un, you know, disengaged from the Daily Maverick as a writer. So I mean, that's really brutal, um, a brutal reaction. Um, and one can you know quibble about some of the detail, but I think on the whole, the, the, the Maverick responded as fast as it was able, uh, and it didn't prevaricate. You know, we've made a mistake and this is the background. Mm. Um, but the third and the key point, and again, you uh, you, you alluded to this earlier by uh, highlighting his, his credibility as a writer and the importance of his work, is that um, more than anything else, I think the saga reflects appallingly on Poe himself and does him and the broader investigation of what's true or not in contemporary society great harm. Um, and he unfortunately compounded his case by... Failing to come completely clean when he did eventually apologise, preferring mistakes which were in fact fabrications, and I think there's a huge difference. Mm. Uh, and yeah,
1: <clears throat> just an interesting thing. Um, I mean, I know you have felt very strongly about um, the credibility or the or the, the risk to credibility that an incident like this makes on any other work that that someone like Jack Po has done. Um, yeah. But what I find interesting is a sort of slightly different view from both Andrew Donaldson and Jeremy Gordon. And it was essentially one that, um, you know, he, he will, you know, it was embarrassing. He was drunk. Um, it was a silly thing to do, but, uh, he'll come out of it the other side. And, you know, thus is, this is, you know, this is journalism. This is how things yeah, happen. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and- I, I think I sort of thought, perhaps by being overly influenced by your, your view, that this mm. was a rather, um, uh, sort of, not so lax view or, or conciliatory view, given the fact that it is purported to be a factual piece as opposed to opinion, which the other two generally write. And, yeah. Um, it was written a few days after the event, uh, the, the uh, Daily Maverick queried aspects of it, uh, eventually printed it, and then he apologized for, for, for lying, essentially. Now that's, it's not as if this all happened in a 24 hour period. Yeah, this essentially yeah. happened over the course of a full week.
2: I think that that's a very important aspect of the yeah. job. And, and also that you know, we, we can sort of sit down and think to ourselves, well, surely, you know, Nussbook published business um, President's Keepers would also have looked at all the detail. Um, you know, there are lots of eyes on the page and the whole process goes on for months. Um, mm. surely we can trust President Keepers.
1: And and, and
2: and 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 maybe we can. Maybe at least ninety percent of it we can. But I think mm-hmm. the, in a way the problem is it's is, is, is with a misstep like this is that it, it allows the powerful to discount comforting allegations, mm. um, and that harms, you know, that harms the whole enterprise. People mm. will always now kind of read something and think, mm, you know, is this a, is this actually true? If the wording isn't quite uh, emphatic enough, or if mm. it's a kind of hinting at something, that you know they'd be inclined to discount it. But I think that's mm. that's a very
1: harmful. Um, yeah, I mean one. Sorry, one of the things that uh, that, that both uh, journalists sort of allude to is that the Daily Maverick should have done more, or, more or um, the cops should have behaved differently. But you know, that's that's really sort of trying to ascribe the blame to everyone but the writer exactly.
2: himself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think so, and you know. Uh, you, One could regard those perhaps as mistakes. Um, and I, I was just thinking, you know, I, I get sweaty palms when I, I recall mistakes of my 38 years in journalism. And, you know, there were some really bad ones. Um, but, you know, and, and we're all human and fallible and, and pose anger and, and resentment and his impulse to hit back can certainly be understood in those terms. But as I mentioned, you know, right at the beginning, the, the kind of whole essence of journalism is a habit of separating self from the top mm. of the hand. Are verifiable factors the foundation of the enterprise because there is really nothing else, Mm. Um, and I think it's in in those terms that that I think all because of the, the, the. that essential quality, but I think it, his apology almost made things worse by presenting this as a mistake rather than mm. as, you know, a deliberate uh, fabrication.
1: that's 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 really what what sort of struck me is the fact that um, even in if, if he felt moved to apologise, he obviously felt guilty that he had misled.
0: Yeah,
1: uh, ever ever had re- read him, but again, it's a sort of it's. A, you see it in government all the time. The sort of um the government must do something instead of the the specific minister must not do something. Um, yes, yes, uh, and and it, it was a little bit like that. Which, in a way, as you say, it almost made it worse because it wasn't a, it wasn't a case of it was a case of coming clean but not taking entire responsibility.
2: Yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly. Um the the, the I, other
1: thing just, i yeah, sorry, sorry,
2: carry on. No, I was just gonna say i just just looking at some, some of the reactions from other journalists. Um I think uh, you know Carol Payton, for instance, wrote about the fact that you know, it was an outrageous abuse. And I mm. that's certainly what I, I agree with. And and Reddit also um, you know, made it very clear that for her it, this was just simply beyond the pale.
1: Um, I think you have two problems with with this sort of thing one is is that the uh, profession is under a lot of pressure at the moment for being um you know the quality of the of 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 journalists the the quality of training um you don't have to s- seem to have what appears to have been a mainstay in in the time when you were were a young uh, journalist and that is the cub reporter the the court reporter scenario by which people can learn so yeah. And, and then you've got a really big name, someone that people, you know, you hear the name and you're immediately, you just immediately impressed, has yes. gone and done something so incredibly shady. Yeah, um, yeah. This cannot, uh, I, I would imagine, be uh, be helpful.
2: No, indeed, indeed. Um, um, it, I mean, it, you know, there, 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 there certainly is a, a bad kind of spin-off, if you like, it's the wrong word, but uh, it's sort of mm-hmm. infecting Quality of this, but as I say, I, you know, I think that what people need to remember is that it's it's how the media responds to to errors, which is mm. and it's quite useful to have the those error, those instances to demonstrate mm. in they but, but it's yeah, it's,
1: um, it's quite interesting in this case that you've got the sort of um, absolute um, sort of uh, I suppose disgust at what he did on the from. Some quarters and on the other side, it's a kind of, yeah, well, it's a mistake. You know, he'll dry, he'll, <laughs> he'll dry out or he'll stop being drunk or whatever. And he'll come back and he'll be okay. And that, that's, 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 that sort of dichotomy is a little bit, uh, is a little bit worrying. It is actually.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it is. Um, I think we do need to take it seriously.
1: Yeah. Can I, can I just sort of ask a, a sort of not entirely serious question? Um, I've I sort of grew up with understanding that you know journalists as a as a professional group tend to rather like um, they're well known for having strong drinking personalities and the ability to withstand yes. alcohol particularly. Like- uh, 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 war, war correspondence, etc., etc. So I don't think anyone would be entirely surprised, you know, or, or condemnatory about that. But it's the fact that having been drunk at the time, come through it. It may have taken a couple of days. It was days after that that this was written. So yes. that sort of swashbuckling hero journalist type has found to be um sozzled and not much yes. else. <laughs>
2: It's so true. I think, I mean, I think, um, uh, things that the, the, the profession is probably, uh, c- cleaned up a great deal. Uh, certainly, in, I mean, in terms of, I think of smoking. I mean, smoking used yes. to be just such a common thing in a newsroom. Every desk had little sort of black marks along the edge of a Cigarette, you know, cigarette being put while the person was typing away. <laughs> and, it burned, burned the desk. <laughs> and I remember the complete shock. I mean, I'm a smoker. I still am. Um, the complete shock in the, probably early 90s when a, a number of um, much wiser and, and healthier uh, individuals in the Argus newsroom managed to persuade management to ban smoking in the newsroom. And it came as a complete shock to the smokers among us. Yeah, it was a
1: complete shock to the profession.
2: Yes. <laughs> you know, this seems to, see, to see be a fundamental part of what we did. Uh, but it's amazing how you do get used to that. In terms of drinking, I think also... Um, you know, very boozy lunches were were quite common in the 80s, but I think by the end of the 90s, that was you know not necessarily considered to be uh, such a defining element of what we did.
1: Well, well uh, Michael, I have to thank you, and perhaps suggest that uh, they need to reintroduce smoking. My, maybe it will help the uh, the sort of ethical quality of. <laughs> In, in, in the times to come. Thank you very, very much for joining us and giving us some clarity on a very, very strange and disturbing issue. entirely. And now we go to the second ad break.
0: IFM 101.9 megahertz of life
1: It's Purim at Selwyn Siegel Gift Shop. They have exciting Mishloach Manot starting from 60 Rand. Do a mitzvah and bring smiles to the faces of friends and family while making a difference in the lives of Selwyn Siegel residents. Call them on 011-640-6413 or email selwyn'sgifts at jhbchev.co.za, or pop in. They would love to see you. Chak Purim Sameach. Right. I would like to briefly discuss the metric pass rate. Now, I don't think anyone would have been surprised that uh, there was a drop in the pass rate compared to um, 2019 um, to an overall NEC pass rate of 76,2%. What... I mean, I mean, the, the circumstances for for, for students, uh, particularly for poor students, was horrific, and even for more privileged students, the, the, the disruption, trying to learn uh, by uh, electronically, etc., not 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 easy at all. But one of the things that the minister said, which kind of worried me, is she said there were a record, four hundred and forty thousand seven hundred and two passes of which 210,820 were bachelor passes. Now, I I haven't looked into this in any depth, but I think this, this suggests something very worrying, and this, it, what it suggests is that people are too easily getting bachelor passes. I mean, the, the ability to get a pass that allows you into a university should really be achieved by maybe a quarter of students, if that. I mean, being able to get into university or be- getting a pass that allows you university should be rarer rather than more common. And the fact that half of the passes um, achieve this, dis- this, 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 this distinction is, is, is worrying. It, it sounds unrealistic and I, I know a comment to one of the articles I read said that the, the, we talked about hiring a young person who had exactly um, this bachelor pass and you know, obviously hadn't been to university yet, but in every respect, their, their numeracy, their literacy, their comprehension was very, very poor, which means that w- whatever the, the training they need, it's not going to be of the intellectual rigor that, that should be presented at university. So I, I think uh, we, need to, uh, we need to look at this in much more detail and uh, um, I propose to, propose to do so over the next uh, few weeks. But allied to this, um, another... I'm not sure how, whether, say, I told you so, whether this is schadenfreude, whether it's coming back to bite you. But, you know, when when uh, President Zuma was uh, left the presidency, shall I say, shortly before he left, he said, there shall be free tertiary education. Now, that is like saying, like kicking the ANC in the crotch because you knew it would become a problem. It, it, was, a, it was difficult to manage. It, it, I don't think he felt at all pressured by the fees must fall campaign. Everyone else was feeling pressured. He ignored the commission that he'd set, he'd set up to look into the matter and just went ahead and said, there shall be free education at, at, at tertiary level. Um, T- totally ignoring or not caring that, uh, How difficult and uh, Complex a situation this is So having gone Through a number of years of, of crisis And problems what has now happened Is the inevitable um, The budget as one title Says budget acts falls on New NISFAS student aid for Key disciplines um, And it Article I've looked at said the government's bursary scheme for poor students is to halt funding for new students in a wide range of programs in 2021, including teaching, nursing and engineering. Now, I, I haven't been able to ascertain what they will continue to fund, but I can only assume that some of what will be funded will be arts courses, um, degrees in I don't know, sociology, which is worthwhile, or perhaps gender studies, which I would argue is not. Uh, What I'm essentially saying is that if anything should be prioritized, sadly, but but true in the the current climate, it is a professional qualification, such as teaching, nursing, etc. And apparently... Teaching, you know, it's just, it just seems incomprehensible to me. If you want to study something in the pure art, in the current climate, you should have to pay for it. It, it was never affordable for the government to pay for absolutely any degree that any student may have wanted, right or wrong. Um, and I i mean, you know, the, the students are already gunning for Bladen Monday in this regard. But it was something that the ANC allowed to take on board that that uh, Zuma bequeathed to them, and they should have undermined expectations from the word go, if not said... This cannot be done. There is a, there's a commission that has come to a finding. We need to go through that first. It, and taken the pain of outrage at universities and freezing us for protesters going bananas. You know, we, we're just not a country that is in a position to be, to, to provide that sort of largesse. Um, and I mean, the, one of the, one of the absolutely astonishing things is that when the SAA needed its 10 billion rand bailout, something was taken from almost all national departments and the worst affected included higher education and training with 1.1 of that billion being diverted to the South Africa business rescue plan um, now that gives you an idea of where the how mis, misplaced the government's priorities are to say the very least um, I mean I, I heard recently from Somebody who's sort of an old hand in the airline business that worldwide airlines, that travel overseas, do overseas routes, will have to convert their airplanes to to either carry uh, uh, goods and cargo specifically, or provide a situation where seats can be removed so half of the airplane can be used to carry passengers and the other half to 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 carry cargo. And those that can't, and they are, they are. Planes that cannot have their seats removed; those who don't adjust to that will basically disappear. They will—they will, they will not be able to make money. They will cease to uh, to exist. And for this, 1.1 billion rand of of uh, higher education and training budget was was diverted. Um, it's—I mean—a whole lot of things are coming back to bite the government and. This is just a new one to bite them further. So while you digest that fact, um, we will go to our ad break to give you time to be calm and perhaps understand the situation.
0: Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.
1: Welcome back to the final few minutes. And I would like to recommend an article by Karen, Carol Payton yesterday called ANC Policy on Immigration, Perverse from Top to Bottom. Um, it's in the business day. And she deals with the fact that our immigration policy and our list of, of, of uh, crucial skills is just perverse. She says that at the bottom end of the labor market, we let everyone in. Even if it's under a fence rather than through border control. But at the top end, we restrict entry as much as possible. So people with skills and money find it impossible to get in. Um, and this includes amongst others. And I think I can't remember which I talked about it. Teachers, people who, who, math teachers, people who need, who, who fulfill skills we desperately need are not on the current list, which was issued last week. She describes ANC immigration policy as a perplexing subject. Full of unspoken prejudices, biases, and political motivations. Um while illegal immigration has boomed to the displeasure displeasure of many citizens. And the whole issues of and she talks about issues of corruption, xenophobia, etc. She dates it back to the late nineties when, as she calls the doves in in the ANC, Recognised that skills shortage and wanted free immigration of scarce skills. And when IFP leader Mangasuto Bertolesi was Home Affairs Minister, this is the policy that emerged. Um, But during Thabo Mbeki's administration, uh, the party's rank and file did not support this approach and suddenly um, they ended up scrapping the bill, scrapping the market approach and replacing it with a quota system. Now... (laughs) Needless to say, quota systems are an inherently bad idea, do not go well with a free market environment and therefore growth and therefore all the good things that go with with growing the society and and creating employment for people. Um, She mentions one quota category setting a limit of 90,000 people a year with a postgraduate degree of any sort and five years experience, not enough. And eventually – the quotas uh, crit- were scrapped, and the critical skills list was drawn up, and the methodology for doing so and, and the determining skills is exceptional seems to have been done. But it's a classic case of bureaucrats doing it and nobody else. Uh, you know, when the, you've got the bureaucrats doing it, the businesses and the business op- and business and the free market needing it, and never the twain shall meet. So I fully recommend having a look at this and seeing that uh, the more things change, the more they stay the same, as, as, as they say uh, in French, which I won't. Other than that, uh, really the thing to look forward to for the rest of the week is the budget, and I wish you an, a happy budget, but I suspect it will be an unhappy budget or a fairly neither here nor there budget since not much can be done about it. And we will look at said budget and aspects of it from Perhaps a different perspective uh, next week. So thank you for listening, and I, w- I hope you'll join me again next Tuesday. But in the interim, I'd like to refer you to our uh, website, daily, dailyfriend.co.za, where you can re- read opinions. Um, we're not journalists. We are opinionistas. You can read opinions, some news items, and listen to podcasts and watch videos that are entertaining and elucidating, if if not um, a little bit uh, um, off the wall sometimes. So with that, um, join us next week and thank you for being here this week. Thank you.
0: Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008.